Hey, and welcome to the Resound Church podcast. Whether it's your first or your 40th time tuning in, we're so glad you're here. And we pray that you get something powerful from today's sermon. Hey, we'll jump right into it. We got Mike Gore here um, to speak in to the area of missions in the church. Mike, for many, many years, was the CEO of Open Doors, which was an organization that ministers and works directly with the persecuted church, persecuted Christians, and the persecuted church across the world. And it's an honor to have him this morning to speak to us. So come on, why don't we put our hands together for Mike as he comes this morning. Mason, thanks so much. Resound, it is good to be with you. It's, um, I'm from Sydney, and so coming down to good old wet Melbourne, but uh, being in a very energetic and lively church is um, it's fantastic. Man, it feels fresh here on your missions weekend. But one of the funny things is I've known Wayne now for a few months and have been doing some work together. There is the Wayne that I've known and then there's a Wayne that I walked into church with today where about a bazillion kids come running over to him. You can't tell if they're going to punch him in the gut or give him a hug. But, and what's funny is it's not just the blokes punching him, it's the little girls the karate chopping him. And so it's just funny to see, you know, the kid whisperer that, uh, that I've not yet seen before. So, man, another side of Wayne. Look, as, uh, as Mason said, and Jess, Mason, thanks so much for having me along. I, uh, my backstory is that I spent... Um, more than a decade working with the persecuted church in an organisation called Open Doors. I finished up there sort of towards the end of last year, but my understanding and my passion for mission, for impact and for local church impact um, remains. And so this morning what I want to do is basically spend the next 25 minutes hopefully giving you a couple of simple lessons around faith because I think what I realise is that we have a habit of overcomplicating the simple. Christianity is, in and of itself, a simple faith. But so often in my own walk and my own journey, I overcomplicate it so I don't have to do it. It's far easier to tell you all of the things and reasons why I can't do missions or I can't serve Christ or I can't do X, Y, and Z, almost as like a, a self-protecting exaclause. And so what I want to do today, and it's great to hear that we're looking at national, your expression of mission nationally, because again, one of the great misses in the Christian faith is that you have to go overseas to do mission. In fact, the hardest place to do mission is in your own backyard. And what we want to do this morning is hopefully look at ways that maybe we can leave here a little bit bigger, a little bit bolder, and a little bit more courageous in our faith. I want to talk, although, about purpose. Now, it might seem strange to think, why are we talking about missions and purpose? But I actually think purpose in so many ways forms the genesis to our expression of faith. And if you're like me, there are times in life that we can end up questioning God's purpose for our lives. In fact, the last eight months, just to be vulnerable with you guys, have been some of the hardest eight months of my life in questioning God's purpose and his plan for your life. You see, I spent more than a decade, as I said, leading a team at Open Doors. It came to an end faster and in a way that I never saw coming. In fact, 
I sort of stepped out over the last three years. I'd been working on building this app that I thought would help open doors. And I followed all of the procedures and policies, all the things that I thought were the right way to do. But then all of a sudden, it sort of spun on me. And I found myself without a job and with an app, um, but questioning God, man, I thought I was doing this to serve the kingdom. So how on earth did I find myself here? See, have you ever questioned God's purpose in your life? Because for me, I woke up every day thinking that God had a purpose and a plan for all of the things I was doing. And it was those kind of words that undid me. To trust that the Lord had a purpose and a plan. What I realized as I look back was there is a fine line between a true God-focused trust and purpose and my attempts to manufacture or manipulate his purpose. That God often does have a purpose and a plan, but it may come at an unexpected cost. And so this morning, I want to take you on a journey that I've walked in better understanding what a God-given purpose looks for your life. But let me tell you about where my story of purpose began. See, I was born as a Hindu in 1981 in India. I was abandoned at birth, born to a destitute woman. I was found by a paediatrician, I believe, in a field. I was placed into an orphanage. This was some of the paperwork. An unwed, destitute woman gave birth to a male child. I was placed into an orphanage, but unable to be adopted because within the Hindu system, a caste system, they believe that what you have done in your previous life determines the circumstances amidst which you are born. So to be born out of wedlock and to a destitute woman, was among one of the greatest of sins. In 1977, four years before I was born, a family in Australia, they had two biological daughters of their own, um, they applied for an adoption. Now, they heard a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape over the next four years, but nothing conclusive about adopting a child. In 1981, they decided on giving up on adopting a child. They spent the money they had saved on a trip to America, Disneyland in fact, as a way of closing the chapter and moving on. They wanted a fresh start. In 1981, as I was in this orphanage, a lady took a liking to me. And one night she grabbed me and she smuggled me across the state border. She bribed some nuns with cash to change my birth certificate, which meant that I could be adopted under a different state's law. This family got back from their holiday. They got a phone call saying, the adoption's gone through. Your son will be at the airport at the weekend. They were a Christian family, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, I haven't asked them, but I'm pretty sure there weren't many Christian thoughts in that house that night because they said, we've got no money. How are we going to afford this? That night they prayed about it. The next day, the mother was driving a car with her two daughters in it. She had a car crash, wrote the car off without a scratch or a bruise to anyone in the car. But she said, what was a miracle was that two days later, the day before I arrived at Sydney Airport, the insurance money had been returned to her bank account. And more than that, it was to the exact dollar that was needed to pay for the adoption. Not a dollar more, 
Not a dollar less. The thing I want to be clear about, though, is that there is no hierarchy in testimony. We live in a culture that's driven by social media. We often try and elevate one story over another, and we tend more often than not to glorify the story more so than God's work in the story. So I want to remind you this morning, no matter what your life story is, whether you're smuggled across borders or whether you grew up in a Christian home, it is God's story. Don't let society or culture, don't let the platform make you feel worse about yours because the reality is he chose to write it into your life no matter how it looks. Our job, again, uncomplicating the simple, is to become comfortable with our story, to begin to learn to share it and to speak it out to those around us. If you haven't yet figured it out, and what's funny is when I did give this talk for Open Doors, someone came up later and said, hey, is that you on the slide? And I'm like, yeah, that's the whole point of the talk. So if you haven't figured it out yet, that's me on the slide in the orphanage in India. And so today what I want to do is talk to you about some lessons around purpose, some lessons around faith. And so whether you're in a season questioning person, purpose, a season needing encouragement, whether or not you were brought here by a friend or family member, I truly believe that there is a God-given reason that you were in this room this morning. In my 12 years serving the persecuted church, I had the great privilege of smuggling Bibles into North Africa, into China. I've been chased by the secret police on lockdown in hotels because of risk of kidnapping for ransom. I've been in the middle of war zones in Syria and Iraq. I've seen the best parts of the church. I've seen the most challenging parts of the church. But the part of the world that I have loved the most was Central Asia. I was regularly chased by the secret police. It's a land of beauty and complexity where the remnants of communism, they kind of collide with the rise of radical Islam. Where the gospel is alive, it is growing. It's a first century kind of book of Acts church. People are coming to know Jesus in dreams and visions through the willingness to share the gospel no matter the cost. Purpose-driven believers who tell me that the first sign of a lukewarm Christian is someone who attends church irregularly. And so the lessons that I want to share with you today, they come from one man. His name is Ozod. We have a picture of him kneeling in the church of which he pastors. Ozod gave his life to Christ late in life. In fact, he was a heavy drinker from the age of 10. He smoked marijuana from the age of 11 and what can, have, what can only be described as an unbelievably difficult childhood. He became one of the best jewellers in Central Asia, the wealth of which only fueled his life of addiction. He was a staunch Muslim who sadly, when married, would beat his wife regularly. When I think of radical transformations, I think of Saul to Paul. And I'll tell you what, Ozod's life is no different to that. Not only has he found faith in Jesus, but he is one of the most instrumental leaders of the church in his country. He is so on fire for God that the KGB have rented the apartment next door to him 
as a way of monitoring what he's up to. I remember sitting on the floor in his house and he says, Brother Mike, if the police come, just tell you my, them you're my friend. More than that, he's still married to his wife who endured more than 10 years of both physical and emotional abuse and is now co-leading his ministry alongside him. I was sitting in a secret church with Ozod, the church of which he is the senior pastor. In his country, it's illegal to preach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. In fact, if you were caught with a colouring sheet with a Bible verse on it, you were likely to be charged with religious extremism and sent to prison alongside terrorists. Sentenced to three years jail. As the service progressed, I noticed that Ozod was not leading the service. I'd been to his church before. He was a senior pastor. I didn't think too much of it, but then after the worship had finished, I noticed Ozod stood up and gathered all the children together and they left. I asked him about it later and he said to me, Mike, it is easy to become a master when you're a servant. But he says to become a servant when you've been a master is almost impossible. He says it's what makes Jesus so incredible. He said, Mike, I've stepped down from leading the church to run the kids' ministry. Because he said, if anyone's going to jail, it is me. He paused He grabbed his eight-year-old grandson and he said, in the West, you look at kids' ministry as a type of babysitting. He said, I believe it is the single greatest investment you can make into the future of the faith in any nation and I'll go to jail for it every day of the week. My hope is for pastors and leaders today, that's an encouragement to you for your kids' ministry that you've got running out the back. Because those leaders are the people that are investing into the future of faith in the nation. Whether it is youth, whether it's young adults, the future of faith in our nation, it falls onto the shoulders of those who follow us, not the ones who have gone before us. Don't ever look at baby or kids ministry or youth ministry as a babysitting service or a placeholder ministry. It is investment into the future of faith. As our time together drew to a close with Ozod, our conversation turned towards purpose. And from a man who stepped out of senior pastoring to run a highly illegal children's ministry, I had a sneaking suspicion it was going to be good. And so what I want to do today is simply share two of those lessons with you. And the first of those is what I would call the power of proximity. One of the things I love and always have loved about the persecuted church is that they immerse themselves in the scriptures. They read the Bible. They see it as their opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. They prioritise reading the word because they know it is life to those who find salvation in its pages. Ozod pointed me to the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man. I mean, it's a story we all know well. It's in Mark 5. Jesus, travelling to the region of the Ten Towns, is greeted by a man who lives in the burial caves. A man so violent that chains no longer hold him. The Bible says no one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with stones. And what a terrifying and haunting picture of someone living in your community. 
When Jesus was still some distance off, the man came running towards him, fell down and begged the Lord not to torture him. The Lord demanded the demons come out of him. We know the story. He cast them in to a nearby herd of pigs who ran down the hill and drowned themselves. But what I've never realised was what happened next. Because as Jesus was getting into the boat to leave, the formerly demon-possessed man came to Jesus and said, hey, can I come with you? I mean, that is a seemingly okay and normal request. Jesus has just turned your world upside down. And he walks to Jesus and says, hey, I want to come with you. Please let me in the boat. And Jesus says, no. I want you to stay here and I want you to tell your story in the region of the ten towns. I mean, it's a seemingly innocuous request to go. But again, that kind of abrasive version of Jesus doesn't give you what you ask and says, no, no, no. I mean, you need to stay here. But why is this important? Ozod tells me, Mike, your story has most power to those who know you best. Had the man got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake with Jesus, where he said people would have known of him. But by Jesus making him stay and tell his story to people who truly knew him, they could see the transformation that only Jesus brings. He says, your story, Mike, has power, is most powerful to those who know you best. Ozod then smiled at me and says, Mike, come with me to Mark chapter 8. I'll flick through the Bible a couple of pages over, eager to see what he's going to show me. And it's about a Jesus, a story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. Ozod says to me, Mike, why are the 4,000 there? I quickly scan the story. I couldn't find an answer. Ozod steps in and saves me as I'm kind of flailing around. And he says, well, you read the Bible in chapter and verse. He said the Bible was never meant to be read like that. It's a flowing narrative and story. He says, Mike, go back a couple of verses. Have a look at Mark 7 and verse 31. And it says, Jesus returned to the region of the ten towns and finds 4,000 people waiting for him. He said, Mike... The 4,000 are there in part because the demon-possessed man stayed and told his story to those who knew him best. It would have been far easier for him to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake rather than face the shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation of saying, man, I was that guy, the naked guy, the fearful guy, the guy that you were all scared of, but look at me now. Your story has the most power to those who know you the best. So let me ask you, Ozod says to me, Mike, have you got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake with Jesus, where it is safe, easy and comfortable to tell your story? Or have you stayed in your region of the ten towns and dealt with the fear, the embarrassment and the awkwardness of looking your past directly in the face and showing those who knew you as you were the transformation that only Jesus brings. And you know what? And he is right. 
in many ways, I've simply jumped into the boat with Jesus and I've gone to the other side of the lake. I'm rarely in contact with people from my childhood, my school days, or my non-Christian working life. And in those moments when I find myself there, how often do I mention Jesus in my story? And I'm happy to tell you all about my adoption, but where was Jesus in that? I can focus on the moralistic change I once did bad things, now I don't. I can focus on the materialistic change. I once had nothing, now I have something. I can even focus on the emotional change. I once was sad, but now I'm happy. But what about the spiritual change? How often do I talk about the fact that I've gone from sinner to saved, as Nick mentioned, in communion, the sacrifice of Christ? And what his death has brought all of us. Ozod tells me, well, Mike, to leave Jesus out of your language, it only ever paves the wide road to hell with generosity and good deeds. The simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who is Jesus to you and what has he done in your life. Because that story is a story that matters. I remember with the team I used to lead, all I got them to do for one kind of spiritual retreat was go and write a paragraph on who Jesus is to you and what he's done in your life. Because I'm like, the moment you can start to get your mouth around that and become comfortable with that story is the moment you're able to start reaching the world around you. Because I feel like for missions, unless we are comfortable with our story first, it is a huge barrier to being able to serve the communities around us. The power of proximity. Your story has most power to those who know you best. Who is Jesus to you and what has he done in your life? A great exercise for teams and leadership to be able to find and articulate what it is that God means to you. The second lesson is to simply love God and love people. It was only a couple of days later, again, I found myself talking to Ozod about life, about faith, and ultimately purpose, where again, he asked me a compelling question. He said, Mike, did Saul love God? Once again, I was flailing around for an answer. I mean, we all know the answer, right? Surely not. No way. He used to kill Christians. And Ozod tells me, no, no, Mike, Saul loved God. He was an expert in the law, devoted to God. In fact, post-transformation, Paul himself says in Philippians 3 that he demanded the strictest of obedience to the Jewish law, a Hebrew if there ever was one. So he said, Mike, in that case, what happened on the Damascus Road? And that is a powerful question. Spent 40 years of my life thinking that Saul wasn't a Christian, knew nothing about God on the Damascus Road, had this incredible experience, fell in love with God. Well, if in this moment it is true that Saul knew and understood God, man, then what happened on the Damascus Road? Ozod pauses and with a warm and gentle tone, he says, Mike, on the Damascus Road, Saul learnt to marry his knowledge and love of God with a love for people. Yes. 
in the West, he said, you often or too often do one or the other. You either live out of faith that is all about religiosity and the knowledge of God and the debating of theology, or it's all about generosity, acts of service and kindness. He says you cannot live at either end of that scale. You must live in the middle where you love both God and understand him, but also have an absolute love for people. It's one of the things I love learning more about Resound and watching the videos. A marriage of both the love of God, the knowledge of God and what he offers the world around you with a kindness and a care for indigenous communities, unreached people groups the world over. You must love God and love people. As we're sitting in his church, Ozod calls his grandson over to me. He's eight years old. He's part of the Sunday school group. Ozod asks him to tell us what the Bible means to him. The boy proceeds to talk about what the Bible means, what the word the Bible means, how the Bible's broken down in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Ozod then asks him to list all of the books in the Bible in order from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, I'm sitting there on the content page trying to keep up with this kid. Ozod then says, choose five books from the Old Testament, five from the New Testament, and tell Mike how many chapters are in each. Again, you would not believe how slow my fingers were in finding the books of the Bible and trying to figure out how many chapters were in each. Eight years old. Remember, this is a country where if you are caught running kids' ministry, you'll be charged with religious extremism and sent to jail. The little boy tells us why the Bible matters to him, who Jesus is to him. Chapters, verses, books... He then finishes by saying, can you tell Mike what everyone should know about Jesus? And he says, yeah, his humbleness. Not pride, not position, but humbleness. He said, if everyone lived like that, it would be really cool. For me, it was a perfect example of both a love of God and a love for people, but not from the eight-year-old boy, from Ozod. A man who in any room he walks into In Central Asian culture, people rise to greet him. He's in his 60s, he is seen as an elder, and I kid you not, you walk into any room, the whole room stands to attention. What I'll never forget, though, is walking into a church building with Ozod. Four hours away from where he lives, the room, as you would expect, rises in attention to him. Ozod walks over to a boy, must have been eight or nine years old, kneels down on one knee in front of him, greets him with a warm embrace, turns to me and says, Mike, This is my dear friend. We study the Bible together. His words came racing back to me. It is easy to become a master when you're a servant, but to become a servant when you're a master is almost impossible. What a beautiful example of a faith driven by love for God and a love for people. It actually reminds me, and as we begin to close today, of a letter that I received from a young Rwandan pastor. He was killed in 1980 when his tribe forced him to either renounce Christ or be killed. He refused to renounce Christ and was killed on the spot. The night before his death, he wrote a letter entitled The Fellowship of the Unashamed. It was found in his room following his death And a handwritten copy of it was given to a dear friend of mine. And it reads as follows. 
I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. He says the decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed and my present, it makes sense. My future is secure. He says I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognised or praised or rewarded because I live by faith. I lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer and labour by Holy Spirit power. He said, my face is set, my gate is fast and my goal is heaven. My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable and my purpose is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversary. I will not negotiate the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. Because I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognising because my colours will be clear and my purpose will be complete. Now that is a purpose, full, Christ-focused life. Don't ever underestimate the value that you have in nurturing faith and purpose in those you're called to lead. Because as I said, I believe God has a purpose and a plan for each of our lives, but it's the journey that makes us great. I want to take a minute to talk, call out two groups of people that I think need to be spoken to this morning. And firstly, it's the women in the room. Because your role as spiritual co-founders within families, churches and society is undeniable. Don't ever underestimate the value you have as women in nurturing faith and purpose in those you call to lead. Because in the Middle East over the last decade, I have watched all but a generation of men be wiped out. And so who does the future of the church shoulders fall onto? It falls onto women some of the most courageously Christian and committed people I have ever had the privilege of working alongside. Mothers, daughters and grandmothers. In fact, I'm only here today because a destitute woman chose love over fear and dropped me off at an orphanage. A nurse chose love over fear and smuggled me across a border. A woman in Australia chose selflessness and gave up wealth 
to invite another child into her family. And because two incredible sisters chose to embrace me and help write God's purpose into my life. And then secondly, it might seem weird, but for the over 55s in the room, I think we fail to realise that faith is so often it is the only thing in life that grows stronger with age. We downsize our house, kids move out of home, income drops, health deteriorates. But faith, it is the one thing that breaks all of those moulds. I've met two of the passionate, most passionate 90-year-olds I've met this morning. People who, from the moment you see them, they encourage you in your faith journey. For people wrestling with the next chapter of their life at over 55 with retirement and purpose where identity's gone from being in who you were and what you did into now the lack of what you're doing. Some of the greatest years of your faith lie ahead of you. Again, I've seen it echo the world over. Ozod gave his life to Christ when he was 55. And he has turned a nation upside down for the gospel. Resound Church, your impact in mission and ministry, the great commission of what you're doing, reaches far. It is broad, it is healthy, and it is powerful. But remember, mission should only ever flow out and an overflow of a courageously God-focused love and understanding of not only what he has done for you, but what he means to you. So as you leave here today, I want you to feel encouraged, encouraged that you're having a great impact, but hopeful and inspired at the reality that you can have an even greater one as you learn to articulate who Jesus is to you and what he's done in your life. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you today and I thank you for the great privilege it is to know and to serve you. I ask that as we outwork your purpose and plan in our lives, that we will become comfortable with the story you've chosen to write for us. Help us to find the words and the language to let it overflow and impact those around us, knowing that our story has the most power to those who know us best. Lord, for all of us that have got into that boat of safety and gone to the other side of the lake, help us to find our way back to find a sense of courage and commitment to speaking about your love and your grace in our lives. God, we pray over Resound Church and all of the ministry and all of the missions that's involved in. Lord, I ask a blessing over the church plants and, and the indigenous ministries, all of the stuff they do overseas, locally and nationally. God, we ask that you breathe on it, that you bless it. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for listening through this message recorded live at Resound Church in Melbourne. You can find out more about who we are online, including our service times and live streams. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time.